All right, we are going to try one last time to finish this series on the last night discourses, John chapters 14 through 17. If you need a copy of the outline there, Brother Mike has a few, and um, we'll get those done. Uh, I don't know if you feel the difference in the auditorium, uh, but the plastic is on the windows, and... uh, uh, somebody said it looks a little wrinkled. Well, it just came out that way this year, uh, but it's still keeping the heat in and the cold out. So we'll uh, enjoy that for the next couple of weeks and hope it doesn't fall down. Uh, if we can get through to about March 1st or so, uh, it will uh, make a difference. So John chapter 17 and uh, just the last few verses here, 22 through 26, we're going to try to uh, finish the prayer Uh, that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 and then uh, tried to effect a brief summary of the last, uh, this would be the 10th lesson on this subject here. And uh, so verse 22, in fact, let's just back up one, uh, that they all may be one, verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. John chapter 17, verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me. And hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. When we start into chapter 18, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Hedron, where where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus, as he was going, he prayed uh, this prayer, and we're just trying to get the, uh, the last uh, cap here, the last part of this prayer. And again, the overriding theme of the prayer is the glorification of God. Now that might seem... I mean, it it does a little bit to me. Jesus is looking to the cross. He's looking to all the suffering that's going to happen. He is going to have to endure being judged by men, wrongly accused, and all of these things. Of course, the greatest suffering that Christ suffered was not that which was inflicted by man. It was that which was inflicted by the Father. And as Jesus would become the sin sacrifice... For us, uh, he did not, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He did not become a sinner. 
He became the sacrifice for our sins. Every once in a while, you turn on TBN and it'll tell, uh, you'll get one of those kooks on there going, Jesus became filth in the sight. No, he did not. He is, always has been, always will be God. He took upon him our sin. But as he was looking to all of this, the thought that runs the whole way through this prayer is his glory. That's something we got to get a hold of. And we've seen this pattern before. Jesus says, I am doing the things that my Father has sent me to do. You are going to do the things that I'm going to send you to do by way of summary. He says, the Father has given me his word. I've given you his word. And you're supposed to live that word. The Father has given me his love. I am giving you that love. That's why the the overriding characteristic of the children of God ought to be this word love. Amen? And if ye love me, what do you do? Keep my commandments. And how many of us failed at that this week? Now, if you're here, you didn't fail at one. Amen? Uh, be encouraged. But the simple truth of the matter is, our sin does not shock God. But let's not go out and add to it. Amen? And so as we look here, Jesus says in verse 22, where we left off last week, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is praying for unity. The key here is that all Christians... Uh, are to be one. Now, we understand that's not going to be accomplished until after the rapture when Jesus takes his church. We believe in the local assembly. But this ought to be pictured in the local church. When we get argumentation and debate and people get irritated with other people and And that kind of stuff gets going. Nothing destroys a church quicker than that kind of stuff. And it's also how we can know that the devil is working in the church instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The the goal here is, and, you know, of course, I hope I'm not trying to put too many things together at the same time, but here's what the world accuses us of. You want to brainwash Everybody that walks in the door. You want them to think like you think. You want them to walk like you walk and dress like you dress. Uh, Excuse me. I'm not the standard. Here's the standard. And if I love the Father, what am I going to do? Keep his commandments. Keeping his commandments is going to do something. It's going to move me closer to him. 
It's going to make me act like Jesus. That's why they called them Christians. Because their behavior had so altered in the city of Antioch, modern day Syria. How many good churches are in Syria today? I don't know if there's one. And if there is, I'll promise you this, it's a persecuted church. But these Christians, these people who were taught by the men that Jesus was speaking, heard him speak these words, were in Antioch in Syria, and their life had changed to a point that they were readily identifiable from all the other people that lived in this city called Antioch. That as they were walking down the store, now uh, down the street, guess what? Christians do the same things that many unsaved people do. How many of you bought food at the grocery store this week? Okay, that's a good thing. Uh, how many of you rode the subway this week? Okay, how, how many of you went to work this week? How many of you work with unsaved people? Uh, so we do the same things. We're in the world. But what did he already pray? I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Amen. And this process of being obedient to God's word is going to make us closer to Christ. And what's going to happen as we get close to him? We're going to get his word. It says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus prayed that in this prayer already. As we are separated from the world, as we are drawn closer to God, people are going to see God's glory in our lives. You know why the devil wants you to lose your temper? Because that clouds God's glory coming through. God, the devil wants you to be lazy at work. Why? Because it hinders God's glory from coming through. There's lots of things in our life. The devil is fighting us. Our flesh fights us. The world we live in fights us. Why? Because they don't want to have to believe in Jesus. Because if they believe in him, guess what? That means they're not in charge anymore. Somebody else is. You know, you can't get out of debt by spending more money paying attention to your Bible. You've got to get that kind of thinking somewhere else. Hello? There are things that are just so contrary to the Scriptures that are the warp and woof, if we want. How many people know what the warp and the woof is? If you've seen like a burlap sack, you can, you can actually see the crossing 
of the fibers that weave it in. And our, our society is rank with anti-God. I mean, it's to the point you can't even get up in any scientific platform at all and say, I believe in creation. They're going to say, you can't bring religion in here. Well, I, I dare challenge you. It takes much more faith in much less than God to believe evolution than it does for a Christian to believe in evolution. Uh, I like what the one guy said one time. He said, yeah, but you Christians, you just cop out. Well, how do we do that? He says, you just put God in the equation and he can do anything. So, yeah, <laughs> that works out real good. It's a whole lot better than your equation. You see, God wants us, Jesus was praying, that we would get close enough to him that maybe if you'll use this word picture, he could rub a little of his glory on us. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a terrifying thought. Isn't it? That the holy creator God of the universe wants to use you, wants to use me, wants to use our church as a billboard for his glory. Isn't that what it says? He says, I want to give them... It says, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. You know the way to stop arguing with somebody? It's for that person that you're arguing with to get Jesus by one hand and you get him by the other. I'll tell you what, there won't be any more argument going on. Read the story of Pilate and Herod. Jesus wasn't even in the same room. But he made peace between... And they both went to hell. We understand that. But even those wicked sinners made peace between them because Jesus had been there that day. Isn't that amazing? And he says that he wants to give us his glory. And if he does, what that's going to do... It's going to make us one. Do you think somebody might accuse us if the Holy Spirit is putting thoughts in our mind of thinking in lockstep with one another? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? That if the Holy Spirit is putting us together and using us to show people the goodness and the love of God that people might think there's something a little different going on here than there is out there. That's what happened in Antioch. It got to the point to where they could recognize these people as they went through. And they, when, when you see somebody really weird, what do you, what's your first thought? wonder where they're from, Right? I remember Stephen told me the story. He was 
over at Times Square with some little job he was doing. And there are all these people there lined up, 60 or 80 people going, you know, just doing all kinds of weird stuff there in Times Square. You've seen them around the city. And and what they are is a group of, of Eastern mystical religionists from China who have been persecuted by the communists, and they're trying to draw attention to that. And they act strange. And they do all these weird motions, and they just stand there, and I'm not quite sure what it's all about. I know it has nothing to do with this book. But they're identifiable by their behavior, are they not? And yet, I just have to ask the question. I want you to think about this. What is the clarion call of our world today for unity in the body of Christ? We need to drop our differences. You guys got to stop fighting about the King James Bible and separation from the world. And, and, and we want to make sinners comfortable in the church. That's what this purpose-driven life is all about. That's not what Jesus was talking about. What he was talking about was exactly the opposite. You know what? It's kind of hard to be strange in New York City. Because it's so full of strange people. Amen. But if we follow this book, it's going to draw us closer to Christ. And the goal is that the world might believe that God sent Jesus. And because he's trying to accomplish that, he wants to give us his glory to make us one with them. Verse 23, if you have any questions. I in them, Jesus in the life of the believer, and thou the Father in Jesus, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, now look at this next phrase, and hast loved them, As thou hast loved me. And do you see how Jesus just seamlessly moves from incredible point to incredible point? He says, I'm giving them my glory that they may be one. You see, I am in the life of the Christian. Now, didn't he also say, I have to go to heaven so the Holy Spirit can be in the life of the Christian? He's already said that. He's explained that in this passage. But see, if the Holy Spirit's there, who's there? Jesus is. Because God is one God. You know, it's amazing to me how much people will argue about the Trinity. He can't, he can't, God can't have a son. Well, it says so right there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But, But that doesn't make sense. If you have a son, he's different than you. That's exactly correct. And I'm glad my sons are different than me. But you know what? I'm not God. God has chosen to reveal himself to us in that way. 
Now, if you want to argue with God, be my guest, but you lose. That's just the way it is. Don't, don't try to argue with him. And my favorite thought on this has always been, what would you do with a God so small that you could understand him? Well, that is the core of idolatry, my friend, is having a God that serves you instead of you serving God. It just might be that the God of the Bible has a little better understanding of life than we do, that his direction and his calling might be a little higher than ours is because he's God. That's what Jesus is talking about here, amen? He says that I want them to be one. I in them, the Father in me. We have the, the triune God dwelling in us so that we can know that the same love that the Father has given to the Son, He wants to give to us. Now, can we chase one more tangent here? The whole world, well, I shouldn't say the whole world, but most everybody that has food and clothing and and a sense of security, uh, they're not running through the woods trying to evade people who are trying to kill them. I mean, they live a normal life. What is their first real problem once you get over the the major ones. Who am I? What am I here for? Where am I going? Does anybody remember those questions? If you went to a secular college, you were taught that that is the primary purpose of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? We, we live in a world, I just read an article this week, and ladies, I'm not trying to pick on ladies, all right? But down at Paris Island, there's an organization called the United States Marine Corps. Historically, they have been known as the really tough guys. My cousin was airborne in the Army, and he said, I just can't wrap my head around the idea of bashing my head into a tree until the tree goes down or I split my head open. He said, that's the way the Marine Corps does things. I like that. I mean, that's just the way I am. I like the Marine Corps. But here's what's going on. You see, they pass laws that have now brought women into the Marine Corps. And the minimum requirement is three pull-ups. But about 80% of the female recruits can't do that. It's not chin-ups the easy way. It's the pull-ups the hard way. And uh, they realize that many women are not as tall as men, and so trying to scale the 15-foot obstacle wall Uh, Some of them couldn't reach the rope that was there, that you were supposed to run and jump and get six, seven feet up the wall so you can grab the rope and then pull yourself. 
And so now uh, they've dropped the pull-up requirement and uh, they have a step stool there. Uh, I am sure that that's going to be issued to all Marines now in case they reach an obstacle that they can put out the step stool for the others and, and get over the obstacles. Do you see what we do? You see, Jesus does not want to lower the standards so that we can get in. He wants to change us and he wants to lift us. But you know, how many of you remember the struggle that you had to go through to get saved? How many of you had to get to the end of yourself before you're willing to trust Christ? You know, it's a little easier for the children to do that than it is for us adults, isn't it? I mean, sometimes God's got to bust your self-esteem wide open, let it run on the ground for you to pay enough attention to God to realize that he's got something you don't. You see, the whole world we live in is built about self-esteem. I've got to be worth something. Even though I can't add two plus two, I'm still important. Well, nobody has said that you're not a human being because you can't pass the test. But would you please go home and learn how to count one, two, Three, four. It's going to help you. And and it will always work out that way, no matter what. And if the teacher does not like the way you put words together on the page, uh, read some books and see how other people put words together on the page. And learn. And yet, we have people who have earned diplomas... And they can't even read the diploma. Their name's written on it. Isn't that true? We're not here railing on people. What we're here railing on is these people are taught, are not taught these things, and yet they're built up and told that they're just perfectly normal and everything is good and there's no problems with them. And the reason people don't like this book because of the Bible is because it tells you that there's lots of problems with you. In fact, there are so many problems with you, God cannot fix what you have. He's got to give you a whole brand new life. That's why it's called being born again. Amen? The love that God has for you is greater than your sins against God. If that does not give you self-esteem and an appreciation for how great God is, I'm sorry, you're messed up. See me. We'll try to help you work your way through. But as long as I believe in my goodness and my worth, I'm never going to accept the value that he wants to place upon me. Because he loved me while I was still a sinner.
Amen. I love the way my preacher said it. You've heard me say it a hundred times and hear me say it a hundred more. He knows everything about me. And he still loves me. I don't know how to put it any better than that. You see, it says here that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them, you and I, as thou hast loved me. If you could get a hold of that phrase, the rest of your life would be simple. But it's hard to get a hold of it. It's hard to keep a hold of it. It's hard to understand that the creator God of this universe loves you and me with the same love that he loves Jesus Christ. What could make you more valuable than that, my friend? What will free you from who you are to embrace who he is any more than understanding that phrase right there? And all God's people said, Amen. we're not done yet. I'm watching the clock. Father, I will, verse 24, that they also... Whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to be with him. Why does he want us to live differently than the world does? So we'll be more comfortable when we're in heaven with him? It says he wants us to behold his glory. Read Revelation 4 and 5. We don't have time to go there tonight or we'll be here another month trying to finish this passage here. But the simple truth is, what do they say about Jesus over and over again in Revelation 4 and 5? He is worthy to receive Glory and power and dominion and riches and honor. And, and, the, and the, the list of things goes on and on. You see, we think we understand. You know, I, I believe I'm trying to, to, to dig past just the very surface of this passage and get a little bit in, but I, I want to warn you about something. We don't know nothing yet. We have no idea what it's going to be like to see His glory. Yet, what did He say? He's going to give us some of it. While we're here on earth living for Him, so that the world will see Him in us. Amen? But when we get to heaven, He wants us to be there. In fact, the reason we cannot behold His glorify His glory is because we still have that sin nature dwelling. I mean, we'd just explode. I mean, we'd vaporize. Because God's glory cannot behold sin. 
No sin in heaven. Not one. How many of you are glad about that thought? I mean, just think about that. No more struggling. No more thoughts. No more temptations. It's only going to be about Jesus when we get there. He says, I want you there so you can really understand who I am. And then we move on. It says, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. Do not go to the world to understand Christ. I don't mean to be overly critical, but I'll tell you what. I've heard an awful lot of musicians in my day. You know what the number one problem with Christian music is? People imitate the world. And I don't care whether you're imitating Carnegie Hall or you're imitating the punk rock club. Both are wrong. The world has not known him. Okay, yeah, we got to forget don't those that are imitating Nashville. I guess that's I guess, we we basically covered all the bases there. Uh, or New Orleans, if we want to put the jazz in there. Yet, I've met people in every genre of music. And you know what they do? They imitate the world. Now, there's only eight notes in the scale. And you have only so many keys on your piano keyboard. And there is going to be some overlap. I mean, there's only so many ways you can put your fingers on the notes. And uh, I play the saxophone. There's only so many ways you can make noise come out of that horn uh, without doing something totally bizarre, like sticking a kazoo in the mouthpiece or something like that. Uh, I'm talking about normal music, but I don't want to study the world so I can learn to play for the Lord. You see, what makes music so great is what is in the heart coming out through the music. Amen? When your heart is full of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it comes out, your music is different than someone who has incredible technique and has studied Mozart and Beethoven and Bach and all of the masters and they can play it perfectly. You see, if it's not here first, I met someone years ago. They actually left our church shortly after this conversation and never came back. Says, when I open my heart to Jesus, heavy metal music comes out. And I said, Young lady, you got to understand something. There's something wrong with your heart. That can't be the Jesus of the Bible. I'm sorry, it's not there. The world hath not known thee. The world does not know God, never has, and never will. So we don't go to the world. We've got to go to the Father. It's going to make us different. Amen? 
Jesus said, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. What did the disciples just say at the end of chapter 16 before Jesus prayed? He said, now we know that the Father has sent you. And what was Jesus' reply? Jesus' reply was, do you know now? Guess what? You're all going to play the coward and run away in just a few hours. Before morning, not a one of you is going to be with me. But he still loves us. Amen? And he still wants to use us in his service. Now look at verse 26. It says, And I have declared unto them what? What's those next two words? Say them out loud. And I have declared unto them what? One more time. We got, I want to get everybody. And I have declared unto them what? Jesus is summing up everything that he has taught the disciples for the last three and a half years in two words. He said, I have declared unto them thy name. Do you get that? You see, our problem is we forget his name is holy. We forget His name is the Almighty. We forget His name is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I mean, every time I read a news article, if it's talking about what goes on in Washington, D.C., guess what? I got blood pressure problems. How about you? Why do I get so upset? Well, I, I love this country and I really hate the things that are going on in it today but I need to remember something his name that's what I need to remember you know when the tempter comes I forget but when the Holy Spirit knocks on my soul and says why do you have to be like this? Then we remember his name. He said, I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. We've, I quote this verse all the time. God is what? Love. Do you want love in your soul? You know, we've got two couples preparing for marriage this year in our church. And I, I highly recommend it. I endorse marriage. I think we've got some other people here who raise their hands. They, they do too, right? Uh, marriage is a wonderful thing. But if you're going to have love in your marriage, who's got to be there first? God does. That's why you can't marry an unsaved person. Because God is in the heart of one and not in the other. And if you can't share that, 
you can't have the best that God, you can't have even the good things that God wants for you. It, it's a struggle. You see, Jesus said, I'm declared thy name and I'm going to keep declaring it because I want the love that God has given me to be in you. Because if God's love is in you, where am I? Jesus speaking here. Jesus is there. Amen? We've spent ten weeks on these four chapters here. 14, 15, 16, 17, yes. And you know what? We, we really haven't even scratched the surface. There's just so, so much. And Jesus uttered these words in the few minutes that it took for him to walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, if you and I were to make a vow to God to spend the rest of our lives memorizing and studying these verses, we wouldn't be done before he called us home. Now, he doesn't want us to limit ourselves to just one little passage of the scripture. But Jesus starts out in chapter 14. You believe in God? What? Believe also in me. He's teaching us about the Trinity of God. The oneness of God. Jesus said, I am the way. Thomas said, how do we know where you're going? Jesus said, listen, do you know me, Thomas? If you know me, you know the way. I've already told you where I'm going. I'm going to my Father. And if you know me, I'm in you. Guess how you're going to get there? Because Jesus is in us. Amen? That was his prayer. All of these things together. Jesus going to the Father and leaving the disciples. It was the absolute best thing that could possibly happen. Where would we be without the cross? What hope would we have if there were not an empty tomb? Amen? Jesus said, if you could understand these things, you would rejoice. He says, but you've got to abide in me just like the branch does in the vine. You know what? That's not an artificial process. It grows that way. Amen? It is connected all the way through. Jesus said, I've received the Father's love. I'm going to give that love to you. But guess what? It's not for you to keep. It's for you to give back to the Father by keeping my commandments. Amen? It's for you to give it to others. The greatest love that you can give to another human being is helping them to obey the Scriptures. You say, but we'll never be perfectly obedient. Why do we go over? Uh, because we want to get a little closer. Amen? We, we want to be reminded to take another step in the right direction. And even if the whole world goes the other direction, which it is going to, it's okay. Because I want to be close to Him. 
if God loves me, I don't care if everybody else in the whole world hates me. Because if God loves me, that's all that matters. Amen? But if we love Jesus, it's going to separate us from the world. They're going to accuse us of things. They're going to persecute us. He said there will be a time coming when they, they, they that kill you are going to be thinking they're doing God a service. Well, uh, they did that to Jesus, didn't they? If I'm close to him, maybe some of that hatred the world has is coming my way too. But if I have his love, who's better off? I am, amen? Even if the world hates me, his love far outweighs anything the world can do. And one of these days, I'm going to be with him in heaven. And a whole lot of stuff I don't understand. A whole lot of things I have in my life that I want out. It's not going to be there. Boy, I'm going to see things and understand things. And I, I will tell you this. God is going to have to make all things new. And the former things are going to have to pass away. Or you and I would spend all eternity browbeating ourselves for all the stupid things that we allowed in our lives while we were here on earth. But you see, he's already thought about that. Well, actually, he didn't think about it. He already knew that. And he already told us what he's going to do so that our little minds can begin to wrap around some of his goodness and some of his love and be encouraged to get close enough to Jesus that people in this world in which we live could see a little of him. In us. Awful lot in those few chapters, isn't there? Whole life of living. You know, it wouldn't take you probably a half an hour to sit down and slowly read through all four chapters when you got home tonight. And yet, Jesus put so much in it that 10 hours and we, we just got started. But we're going to move on. Pray for Brother Franz. He'll be preaching next Thursday night. And Brother Mike will be preaching Sunday night. But let me, let me tell you something. God wants to use our church. Not a one of us have any idea what's going to happen this year. But I got a pretty good idea. It ain't good. How about you? But if I'm headed in the right direction, I have his love. And I don't need to worry about anything else. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. and Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to drive home the incredible truths that are in these chapters, Lord, the 
the things that you prayed for, Lord, would never even pass into our wildest dreams. I mean, the whole world's trying to become God. And yet here you promise us that you're going to put your glory on us if we'll just be one with you. And you're doing all the work. We're the ones that's moving, but you're the one that's moving us. Lord, I ask that you would just break the locks that we have placed upon our understanding and our grasp of the things that are in your word and that we would allow you to open them wide and fill us with your word and your love and your glory. Lord, that we may know your name, that we may take your name to this wicked world in which we live. We ask that you would have the freedom to work in hearts and lives during the invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll keep our heads bowed.